welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. How would you like to have a crystal ball to predict the future of commercial real estate? Well, as you may have listened, heard on the show before, we have a crystal ball here, right? Well, the good folks at PwC, uh, they do a great job of studying the factors that impact commercial real estate. And they've just produced a report entitled Real Estate 2020, Building the Future. Of course, there are no warranties expressed or implied with our discussions today, but I think you'll find the possibility of what lies ahead very interesting. Please welcome my guests, Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock, both with PwC, joining us on Skype today. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Michael, for having us. Happy to be here. Well, to get us started here, tell us a little bit about um, Real Estate 2020. What is the scope and the, the mission of this report? So we were trying to take some contextual factors to really take a look at where we think the real estate industry is going. And some key takeaways are, number one, that the investable asset base worldwide is growing substantially. Number two, that the dollars to invest in that real estate asset base are also growing exponentially. And we'll try to put that into context for you today. And it's being driven by waves of urbanization as the population continues to move to cities, which are driven by major demographic changes and an emphasis on sustainability and the growth of infrastructure worldwide. So those key takeaways really drive the importance of realizing the continued investment attractiveness of the Western world, but also the tremendous growth in the emerging markets. Okay, and is this full report available to the public? It is. It's on our website, www.pwc.com, okay. Real Estate 2020 and Beyond. Okay, and we'll put the link on the show page here so so the listeners and uh, viewers can uh, get to it. And, and, uh, and you, and you know, said that you have six major takeaways here, and I know takeaway number one is about the expansion in the cities, but also says there's going to be some mixed results. What do you guys see there? Sure. Well, so... There are, there's two, there are two facts to consider there. Number one, around the world, people continue to move from rural locations to urban locations. And there will be a 70%, 75% rise in urban population by 2050, which means that by 2050, two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities. In fact, there are going to be 37 megacities around the world and 12 of them are going to be in the emerging markets. So even the cities that we deem as major in the Western world may see some contraction compared to the growth that we're seeing in cities elsewhere. And one thing I'd add there is when you look at the globe and you look at where cities exist today. So, um, and one of the benefits of having uh, teenage children that I help with homework is I'm refreshed in a lot of things from algebra to world civilizations. But if you look at the globe, cities were established 3,000 years ago because they were near a major um, transportation hub, which was a port and an ocean. So some of the growth in the 12 megacities that Byron talks about, uh, many of which will be in sub-Saharan Africa, are completely landlocked. And the transportation hub in this century involves air air and not water. So, um, and we'll talk about resource scarcity later, 
But if an area has fresh running water and the right climate, it can be inhabited as a city, even if it's an area today which is largely uninhabited and largely rural. Well said. And in addition, you look at the central planning governments like China that are building new cities and literally moving a million and a half residents a month into those cities. And so they're changing the landscape of their own country via rural to urban urbanization through cities that they have developed for that purpose. In addition, you see other governments trying to create these, quote, cities of the future, like what's happening in Abu Dhabi with Mascar, in South Korea, Kazakhstan. Uh, they are all trying to create what they deem to be the cities of the future to make their important urban hubs uh, relevant to their own societies and in the global economy. Okay, so you expect that we're going to see a lot more dense development then. Yeah, and if you think about it, and obviously this is a global report, um, so let's take it local for a second. Uh, and Byron and I are in New York City today. Um, we're urbanizing New York City in a way that it hasn't been urbanized before. You know, some people used to call it gentrification, where you took a neighborhood that was potentially run down or had another use, like an industrial use, like the meatpacking district mm -hmm. in Manhattan, or some neighborhoods in Brooklyn that were more industrial and we've turned them into residential neighborhoods. But what we're doing is we're increasing the urban footprint in, in big cities like New York. Uh, and I think that that's a trend that you will continue to see across the country in these megacities because the aging population wants to stay there and the new population, the millennials, want to be there. So we have this convergence of the older and the younger generations wanting to live in urban areas and to be less car dependent. So that's why you, you have the popularity rising greatly, and it's in the government's best interest because they can increase the tax base in those uh, municipalities. But to your point, it comes with the planning need for increased densification, and that includes higher density developments, improved transportation arrangements to move people around, as well as um, what happens at what we call transit-oriented development stops that become transportation hubs with development around them that include retail, office, and living arrangements, be they multifamily uh, re rental or condos. In the rental markets, you're seeing the growth of these micro-apartments to pack more apartments into a footprint, um, some as small as 500 square feet, and those are uh, designed for this new millennial lifestyle and is an example of the densification that we're seeing in some of our cities. By the way, 500 square feet, if I compare it to the first apartment I had in Manhattan, that's a palace. <laughs> um, it's all but relative. It's, it's interesting. Um, if you think about creating a new urban area, whether it be a totally unpopulated area or a what I'll call a repurposed area, what do you need? Uh, and, and some of these are tail and some of them are dog, but you need housing, you need retail infrastructure, you need education, and you need um, healthcare, okay? Two of those three are more, more infrastructure, okay? One could argue that perhaps retail is infrastructure, but I think it's also commerce. Uh, but those are the, the four basic needs. Then the last thing you need is transportation. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a very fine line, and we can talk about this more perhaps um, after the break, but there's a very fine line between where the government is and where the government isn't in terms of some of that um, urbanization. 
but I think the partnership between government slash municipality and uh, private investment is really where um, the future lies for the commercial real estate and the residential real estate asset classes. And uh, we talked about the growth in investable capital. That's investable capital is going to come in sort of both public and private sector. Right. Yeah. And later in the show, we're going to give six ways to prepare and uh, take advantage of the what's going to happen in the future. And let's go back to the takeaways. Uh, let's look at takeaway number two about the unprecedented shifts in population and how that's going to drive demand for real estate. What do you expect to see there? And maybe I'll step back and give a little bit of a mega trend that puts that into context, okay? Because the shift in population uh, is obviously births, but it's also aging. Um, so if you go back to 2050, um, 8% of the world's population was over the age of 60. If you go to the year 2000, 10% of the world's population was over the age of 60. If you go to 2050, okay, 21% of the world's population is over the age of 60. So that's a doubling in 50 years of um, the over 60 population, whereas in the 50 years before that, we only had a 2% increase, um, two percentage points increase. So I think it's really important to remember that a lot of this population growth isn't the, the birth of new children as much as it's the aging of our generation and those are advances in science and advances in healthcare and the ability to communicate those advances around the planet that are really leading to an aging population and thus a growing population. And we're short on the break here so you see a lot more uh, need for assisted living and senior housing, right? Absolutely. And that doesn't even include what's happening in the emerging markets. Correct. Where you'll start to see 60 percent of the world's construction activity going on there. Hmm, that's interesting. All right, well, stay with us. We're going to have more on these uh, six takeaways, and then we're going to get six ways to take advantage of what's going to happen in the future. So stay with us more on Real Estate 2020 from PwC. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, we're talking with Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock about Real Estate 2020, and we're going over first to start the show here with the six takeaways from this report that's uh, pretty much predicting the future of real estate in, in 2020 and beyond. And, and takeaway number three was the emerging markets growth ratchets up competition for assets. What do you mean there, guys? So let me uh, sort of take that, and I'll let Byron deal with the uh, the competition piece. But let me just frame the emerging markets and, and the size thereof. So if we go back to 2009, the G7, and I'll define the G7 as the United States, Japan, Germany, the UK, France, Italy, and Canada. Uh, the GDP of the G7 was about 50% larger than the GDP of the E7, and the E7 will be China, India, Brazil. Russia, Indonesia, Mexico, and Turkey, okay? But if we take that out to 2050, um, the GDP, this is U.S. dollars of GDP in trillions, 
$138.2 trillion of GDP for the E7 compared to $69.3 trillion for the G7. So we're going to see in the next, call it 50 years, uh, from 2009 to 2050, uh, a doubling of the size of the economy of the emerging markets as compared to the, uh, the, the, the G7. And what's interesting is you talk about emerging markets today and it's all over the news because of some hiccups in some markets around the, the country, the world rather, um, and how our equity markets are dealing it. And then there's a current news story every day about what's going on in, in Russia and some former Russian republics. But you have to really have some historical perspective around that and look at this over time. But those emerging markets have much faster growing economies than the United States. The GDP growth in emerging markets, in some cases in many of the past years, has been triple digit. Um, the GDP in China has a seven handle on it. We'd love to have a three handle on our GDP growth in the United States. So if you just do the math and predict that forward, you're going to see a growth in the economy of emerging markets uh, at, a, at a rate that outstrips the, the G7, but then the size of those economies will dwarf ours. Well, in fact, of the, of the emerging market economies that you listed, the top five economies in the world in 2020 will be emerging market economies. And that's, that's something we are not trained to think of in our G8 world. We think that the G8 maintains that position and that is not the case based on growth rates. Other fun facts to consider is, like I mentioned a moment ago, by 2025, 60% of the world's construction activity will be going on in the emerging markets. A, a, a sub-fact of that is to think about a country like Nigeria that's experiencing tremendous population growth along with urbanization and using its national resources in oil and gas to fund that. But Nigeria alone as a country to satisfy its housing needs needs 20 million houses. So you think about the magnitude of emerging markets construction compared to today. As we live and think and invest in our G8 world, it's really happening elsewhere. And one of the interesting things I get a lot speaking about the, these trends or the research we do uh, that you've covered so well in the past, emerging trends in real estate, is this paranoia, if you will, around foreign investment in U.S. real estate. Right. And a lot of that foreign investment is coming from these emerging markets and those markets taking that wealth that's being created because of the growth in those economies and investing in the United States. So again, a little bit of historical perspective around that. If you look at our country, which is you know less than 300 years old, okay, it's been it, prior to um, 1776, we were all foreign owned, okay. But even <laughs> even since then, the fact of the matter is, the largest foreign investors in U.S. real estate have been our largest trading partners, mm -hmm. okay. So our largest trading partners today are China, which is part of that E7, okay, and then oil-rich nations that we trade with because we're foreign oil dependent. Um, so if you think about that and play that forward, as these emerging markets continue to grow and their economies grow and become more robust, our trading with those markets is going to become more and more profound and they're going to be investing in, in U.S. real estate. And I think sort of some of the play here is for U.S. capital to start investing in some of those countries also uh, because I think in trading partners investing in one another 
creates healthier, long-term, sustainable relationships. And these emerging markets, I mean, they, they provide opportunities, but also some risk, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think the risk tends to be in the short run as opposed to the long run. So if you just think of the risk-return ratio in any kind of investing, anything that's got a higher coupon has a higher coupon for a reason. So if markets have 12% GDP growth, it's not out of the realm of possibility for there to be a lot of inflation in that economy or for that economy said in another way to overheat. And it's the short-term overheating of those economies that causes some of the imbalances, whether they be currency imbalances or just sort of trade uh, um, volume imbalances. But if you look at the opportunities for investment in emerging markets over time, I think you'll realize that uh, once upon a time, 250 years ago, the United States was an emerging market, that those who invested in it did very well. Okay. So if you look at the asset management business globally as it grows to $101 trillion, a percentage of that is dedicated to real estate, usually 5 to 15%. And so we look at what do investors want as they're evaluating that risk-return continuum. And 70% of the market still wants what is known as core investment that is stabilized office, industrial, retail, or multifamily properties, and North America is still a favored venue for that because of perceived safety and transparency in the financial reporting. London last year was the top investment destination as a single city, also again for perceived safety, mostly from the wealth of the rising middle class excuse me, the rising high net worth population in the emerging markets seeking to have diversified exposure in a city like London. Meanwhile, the U.S. Con continued to receive increased foreign investment for the desire to have safety and stability and transparency. Then beyond that core, you can move up the risk spectrum to mezzanine lending, development, and then, of course, development in the emerging markets, to Mitch's point, that might be perceived in the short run of having tremendous risk, but 5, 10, 15 years from now, those are going to be the stabilized investments that have, in many cases, the same attractiveness that the core investments do in the U.S. And I think one of the challenges people always have with U.S. capital investing abroad is there isn't some of the safeguards in foreign investing that exist in the United exactly. States. And it revolves around transparency, not just in our legal system, transparency in terms of how one interacts with government, and transparency in terms of financial, financial reporting. reporting. And that doesn't exist consistently around the planet, and I think that that's one of the challenges that um, U.S. investors have had when investing abroad. But I think if you wrap your brain around asset allocation theory, um, not having a significant slice in emerging markets um, would be a mistake in a liquid investment portfolio, and I think it similarly would be a bit of a mistake in an illiquid investment portfolio of a durable asset class like real estate. Right. Yeah, well, there's certainly some interesting times ahead of us, and uh, you guys have a great perspective. And, uh, again, that uh, link to the report will be on our show website. So more on Real Estate 2020 with PwC. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. 
France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking with Mitch Rochelle and Brian Carlock about Real Estate 2020, Building the Future, the PwC report. And we're talking about the the six takeaways. And takeaway number four is very interesting. We just did a a show on this, and I think there's a huge future here. But takeaway four is sustainability transform designs of buildings and developments. Guys, what do you have there? So let me give a little uh, sort of megatrend uh, background to it. Um, if we look at the year 2030, there'll be 8.3 billion people on the planet. It's going to be right? crowded. So not too far in the, in the future, 8.3 billion people on the planet. In order to provide for that population, we're going to need, compared to today, 50% more energy, 40% more water, and 35% more food. So. I, I like to say that before we talk about sustainability only because I think it puts into context the fact that we have a resource scarcity problem on this planet, which we're going to need to solve for because, as I, we mentioned earlier in a previous segment, we have this growing population mostly from aging. And the aging population tends to be more fragile um, than the, the middle of the population cohort. So it's the energy, the food, and the water that are going to be needed. So I think it's going to change who countries trade with because they're going to trade with those that have the energy, uh, the water, um, um, and the food. Um, but it's also going to change how real estate is used. So I'll let Byron sort of talk about the real estate impact. Well, I think we're already seeing it, aren't we, Mitch? We're looking at landlords that are very focused on transforming their existing buildings and when they build new buildings, making sure that they comply with what's known as LEED certification or, or graded by GRESBY, which is another uh, grading uh, organization that looks at the sustainability measures of a particular building. In fact, in Europe today, uh, investors require that sustainability audits be done of portfolios to report back to them not only the financial um, strength of a particular real estate investment, but also the sustainability score that relates to that building's carbon footprint. And so you see buildings much more sensitive to their own recycling programs, access to alternative energy, uh, waterless toilets, uh, improved lighting fixtures, low VOC carpet and paint. We're seeing that as almost a given now in new development as being important. It's also moving into retrofit of how certain real estate dependent companies try to be energy efficient or even energy self-sufficient, such as retailers putting solar panels on their roofs so that they can power themselves if there's a failure in the grid or if they want to show that their operation can be self-sustainable without having to draw power from the grid. And in some cases, they're even selling power to the grid. And one of the things that's interesting when you talk about power and grid is if you take your basic office, people leave and they turn the lights off, right? right? So I think of sort of the uh, my parents' generation who were children of the Great Depression or grew up in the wake of the Great Depression. They were always screaming at us growing up because we were never turning light switches off. Okay, Okay, so we turn off all light switches, but everything we have plugged into an outlet is still humming, 
okay? The television, the monitor, the monitor, the monitor, the monitor, okay? The, the, the number of devices that are plugged into chargers that are already fully charged but still humming because they're still plugged into the charger. So that's one of the challenges right. that businesses have today with energy efficiency because they're constantly keeping plugged in all of these devices because they're hooked up to the grid and they're vital to the operations of the business, but they're not the light switch, which is what people think about when they think about power. That's right. Right, and these utilities, uh, with that much demand, they're going to get expensive. So sustainability is a way to cut down those costs, right? And, the, and you can hedge the variability of energy costs all you want. The problem is, if I look at my own utility bill, it's, it's going through the roof from a rate perspective. And I can't wrap my head around it because I say, wait a second, the uh, fuel costs haven't gone up. And I would think that you know regular energy is dependent upon fuel costs. But the fact of the matter is, how sensitive energy cost is to natural disasters that take place. This has been an awful winter in terms of uh, energy costs across the United States because of the bitter cold. Mm -hmm and um, all the disruption to the continuous flow of power up and down the East Coast. And think about down in Atlanta, you've had like record cold and record you know, precipitation impacting the power grid. So that's just our little microcosm. And let's project that around the world to new emerging markets that are getting energy literally for the first time that are so thrilled to have it that aren't gonna understand the concept of conservation around it because it's such a new phenomenon. There are parts of the world that are oil rich that you know take for granted the cost and scarcity of, of energy because right. it's pumping right out of the ground. They leave windows open in, in, in countries that are 100 degrees and run the air conditioning because they just don't think about the cost of it. So I think there's also an educational process that needs to take place. So I'll go back to something we said earlier. We have a millennial demographic. All right, we're going to have more on Real Estate 2020 in just a moment. I'm Michael Bull. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit commercialrealestateshow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us. We're talking with Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock about Real Estate 2020, Building the Future. We're talking about some of the six takeaways, and takeaway number five is the disruption of technology. What should we expect there? So let me start like I did uh, with the, the last uh, observation and give you a little bit of uh, data around that. So if you uh, go to 2008, Okay. In the year 2008, there was one interconnected device, and I'm going to use a little prop here, okay? There's one interconnected device per person on the planet. But if we go forward to the year uh, 2020, when the population uh, of this planet is 7.6 billion people, we'll have 6.58 interconnected devices per people on the planet. And I think, and I'll turn it to Byron for what the real estate impact of that is, but clearly the use of interconnected devices is going to change commerce and thus change the use of commercial real estate and residential real estate. Well, we see it in many ways. I mean, first of all, you see the growth in e-commerce on the retail formats of how people are buying and selling goods, and that's impacting the way industrial goods are distributed. 
to reach the fulfillment needs of what's been sold on the internet. And then you see the different ways that people are using their offices than they used to by using technology to communicate, flex time, you're not in the office necessarily five days a week, and it's changing the way we telecommute versus in-person activity. I mean, we're doing it right now. Yeah. We could have flown to Atlanta to see Michael's beautiful face in person, <laughs> but we're sitting in New York. Byron's based in Dallas. He was in New York for business and we're Skyping in, and I think that that's really changing the use of real estate. Because technology's doing that, exactly. Okay, well, let's look at uh, takeaway number six. Real estate capital takes financial center stage. So all of these changes in activity look to increase the amount of investable real estate worldwide by 55% against a global assets under management uh, landscape of $101 trillion. So you look at the increase in available real estate for investment along with the acceptability of real estate as a viable alternative investment area and you see that there will be years of continued vibrant real estate activity not only domestically but certainly internationally as we capitalize on this emerging markets growth. So Byron, if I understand that correctly, just based upon the growth of those world economies that we talked about uh, in, in a previous segment, just that growth alone which creates a wealth effect around a planet is going to create that 55% increase. Exactly. Right. So that number could even theoretically be, be higher. It could be higher. If an increased allocation went to real estate, and if you look historically at uh, when investors have allocated um, excess funds to real estate, has typically been in periods of economic expansion. Yes. Right. So just take our country alone. We had a, a boom in the 80s uh, in the growth of our economy. We disproportionately invested in real estate. Uh, we did it for a brief period in the 90s. We certainly did it uh, earlier in, in the previous decade. All of our booms in commercial real estate and residential real estate in form of housing has always been in periods of economic expansion. And there's another phenomenon in this cycle that's especially interesting as we look at the growth of the impact of sovereign wealth funds around the world. Currently a $6 trillion audience and these are the treasuries of certain emerging market and natural resource rich countries that are investing their national treasuries into assets around the world, real estate being a component of that. So you look at that $6 trillion audience expected to grow to $13 trillion by 2020, allocating a percentage of their treasuries to investment in real estate, that's also being a big contributor to the dollars that are going into the space. And if my theory that I expressed earlier about um, countries investing with their trading partners, those sovereign wealth funds will end up investing outside of their homeland into some of these emerging markets because they're now becoming trading partners with them. Exactly. Right? So the other thing to just mention in what's left before the break is the interconnection between the construction spend and the growth in the economy. So if these economies are growing and building is taking place, one of the biggest job engines in that country is going to be the building of that country, which is construction. construction industry. So the linkage between construction, the linkage between construction and government, and the linkage between construction, government, and real estate can't be ignored. No. So the public-private partnership that exists between uh, a municipality or a government and the private investors and the construction company, I think, is the model 
in the United States, we've unbundled construction and real estate development. They tend to be different businesses. I think you'll see more vertical and horizontal integration in emerging markets between those two businesses with the government being a piece of that. Well, the infrastructure cannot be denied. And that, that dollar expenditure on infrastructure could be as much as $50 trillion. And that's the expansion of airports, roads, bridges, tollways, hospitals, schools. That infrastructure will command tremendous amount of dollars in these public-private partnerships, as you expressed, but lead to tremendous real estate and construction activity. Well, there's a public-private partnership on my street, because if the town doesn't fix the potholes, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funds are going to come from everywhere between now and 2020, right? Well, I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate uh, Show. More on Real Estate 2020 in just a moment. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We're talking with Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlick today about Real Estate 2020, building the future. And uh, we talked about some uh, takeaways. Now we're going to share six tips to prepare for the future. So what are these six tips, guys? Let me run through them quick, and I'll let Byron comment. Uh, the first one is think globally. We obviously talked a lot about uh, the planet getting smaller economically, uh, so you have to think globally. Second is understand the underlying economics of cities. So it's not just the city that you're familiar with. It's all cities around the, the globe, and those new cities are being uh, formed. The next is factor technology and sustainability into your decision-making process and into valuations. You can't uh, forget about either because they're two big megatrends. Uh, the next is collaboration with governments uh, to enable uh, economic and social progress, and I think we talked a bunch about right. that, but you really have to focus on that public-private uh, collaboration. Um, the second one is decide where and how you want to compete. I think the backyard that used to think about competing it with maybe across the uh, ocean. And then lastly, um, I think you have to really assess the opportunities and really reflect on the broader range of risks. I think the traditional thinking around risk reward has changed and when you're thinking about emerging markets with faster growing economies, I think you really have to figure out what the risks are, where the opportunities are. So I would say that as you evaluate those six, two that really jump out to me is number one, we cannot ignore the emerging markets because these populations are growing at an unprecedented rate and they will have a tremendous impact on the world economy and we can't ignore that sitting in North America. The second is along that same line you can't ignore the impact of 40 to 50 trillion dollars of infrastructure investment and the real estate activity and construction activity that comes from that as you see as you pointed out earlier the public-private partnership coming together to build housing, roads, bridges, airports, hospitals, schools to serve these growing populations in the emerging markets. And so as we think about the impact, I'm not sure we have seen this grand a redevelopment of the world or expansion of the world since the Industrial Revolution. And it's um, you know not to be understated because when you look at the population in Sub-Saharan Africa and you look at the growth of the economies in China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, Turkey, 
there is a lot of activity going on that is supported by real estate activity that is born of this infrastructure investment and public-private partnership and frankly will create great investment opportunities for all of us. And I think if you think about the investment model for real estate in the future, so it's 2020 and beyond, it's going to have multiple pieces of it. It's going to be just investment capital, it's going to be active capital like a developer, it's going to be active uh, work like a construction company, and then it's going to be government. And I think all of those factors working together are going to be the model. And you don't have to look past some of the airport redevelopments that have taken place in our own backyard. Okay, That's the model for those. It's those four elements of capital working together as a team to redevelop infrastructure so there's going to be a very blurred line between what's infrastructure and what's real estate in the future. Okay, and give us two sentences on number two again, understanding the underlying economics of cities. Well, I think you have to look at the, this urbanization wave to choose the cities where you invest. But to that point, you'll have a spectrum of investments ranging from core, which may not yield as much as mezzanine, which may not yield as much as you know being an equity partner in a development. But as you choose your locations, realizing the pros and cons of that particular city, you have to take in all of these trends to analyze what you think is the city that meets the definitions of a good place for investment. And the city right. of today is probably not the city of tomorrow That's and vice versa. Well, gentlemen, well said. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having Thank us, you. Michael. If you'd like more information from this report, we'll have the link at the show webpage. Thanks for joining us today. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Atlanta Office Liquidators, new and used furniture liquidators, France Media, publications and conferences, and Bull Realty Commercial Brokerage, a great place to do business. For more information on these companies or to access additional podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.